In order to have birds in your yard, you need to have caterpillars. And in order to have caterpillars, you need to have native plants. That's just one of the reasons to fill your outdoor spaces with native plants that have evolved to fit your region of the world. If you've listened to Mothering Earth before, you know what I'm going to say, plant native. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Why plant native plants? It makes gardening so much easier because native plants are adapted to your soil, your climate, and rainfall. It benefits your soil, water, and air because you won't need to use pesticides and fungicides, which would pollute your environment. Native plants provide beautiful greenery and flowers and provide food and habitat for local birds, pollinating insects like butterflies, and other wildlife. Depending on where you live, the list of native plants will vary. But no matter where you live, a little online research or a chat with local gardeners will reveal what plants are native to your area. In this program, you'll meet a champion of native plants. You heard her at the beginning of the program. She's Meg Inglis, Executive Director of the Native Plant Society of Texas. We'll talk about the many benefits native plants bring to any ecosystem. But first, I asked Meg to tell me why she joined the Native Plant Society. My husband and I moved back to Texas from out of state in the year 2000. We built a house on two acres near Dripping Springs. And when we um, decided to supply our house with water, we chose to, to go with rainwater. So our house is what we would call a sole source rainwater home. And um, since we were gathering, we were gathering all of our water from the roofs, all of our water needs are coming from our roof. Um, I figured that we ought to take a look at uh, what we put in our yards because it's my understanding was back then that 40 to 60% of household water use is put on the landscape. And I knew we couldn't afford to take 40 to 60% of our rainwater and, and dump it on the ground. So, <laughs> so we went and we got involved in looking at natives um, to put on our septic field, and it just took off from there. And, and that's how I ended up joining the Native Plant Society, because I was looking at seed mixes to put on the septic field and happened to meet somebody from Austin chapter. And he said, wow, you need to be you need to join this group. And he was right. So tell us, what is the society and what's its mission? Well, the Native Plant Society of Texas is a nonprofit organization we established about 41 years ago. We ha ha currently have about 35 chapters located throughout the state of Texas. And our mission is to promote conservation, research, and utilization of native plants and plant habitats. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Meg Inglis, and she is executive director of the Native Plant Society of Texas. Uh, and we're talking about native plants. So uh, one thing we should talk about is what exactly are native plants? How are they, how would you define that? Oh, native plants. 
Well, there's, it's interesting because there are many different definitions of native plants, uh, but I like to, to use the simple one, and that is this. Native plants are species that evolved and occur naturally without any human intervention in a particular ecoregion or environment. Um, so that no human intervention means that we're talking about the plants that were here before um, Europeans came to the continent, basically. Right. And, and of course, native plants aren't the same everywhere. They would be different depending on which part of the country or which part of the state you're in. Absolutely. Right. You are so correct. Native plants differ depending upon where they're located. And uh, one key word in the definition that I just gave is evolved. Uh, and native plants have evolved over thousands of years to thrive in the conditions of the ecoregion in which they grow. And typically, a, an ecoregion is described by three conditions um, annual temperatures, annual rainfall, and soils. There are uh, defined a number of different ecoregions based on the conditions I just mentioned. If you want to take one condition and look at it, rainfall, for example. Um, Houston, in the Gulf, gets an average annual rainfall of 50 inches. If you travel across to the Big Bend area, and you'll see that the average rainfall is, is, is really more around 15 or 18 inches. So mm -hmm. it's pretty logical to think that a native that is used to 50 inches of rainfall in Houston will not do well in an area that only receives 15 inches. So the, the second condition is the temperatures. Um, so our, our natives tolerate the temperatures at, at which they grow and in the area that they grow. And then finally, the third condition that I mentioned earlier, soils. Um, natives are adjusted or adapted to the soils that they grow in. And in, my, in our case, in this area, we have alkaline caliche limestone soils. So when I dig a hole to plant a tree in my yard, I use a pickaxe <laughs> and, and I pull the dirt out and I might mix a little bit of compost in with the dirt, but that is it. I don't have any amendments whatsoever because I only plant what loves alkaline caliche limestone soils. Right. And we have a lot of people who move here from the Houston area and they immediately want to plant their favorite plants, like azaleas, for example, to remind them of home. And I, I get that they want to be reminded of home, but the problem is that azaleas just love acidic soils, right. and they like a lot of water. And when you plant plants that don't belong here, like azaleas, you are in for a continuous struggle to try to make that plant happy. You know, amend the soil, and and then you'll have to water it a lot more, and probably amend it again. It it does gardening doesn't have to be this hard. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, here today with Meg Inglis. She's executive director of the Native Plant Society of Texas. And uh, one thing we always hear is that native plants really benefit the environment. Um, can you talk about that and what ways they benefit the environment? Oh yes. That's key. That's that's a, a benefit we like to talk about in our classes that we give. Um, native plants make up the base of the food chain and and or the food web, um, whichever term you would prefer to use. And they're essential to the success of our ecosystem. All wildlife really depend upon native plants. And um, 
A person who's made that really clear over the past 20 years is a, as a, a professor of entomology and wildlife ecology at the University of Delaware, he got, uh, Doug Tallamy. He's, he's written three books and lots of articles and done numerous studies and done tons of presentations. Let me just tell you what I've learned from Doug. Um, as the plants evolved over time, and we're, we're getting back to that word evolved over thousands of years, they developed mechanisms to protect themselves from being wiped out. Um, plants, these native plants have done amazing things. They produce toxic, bitter chemicals in their vegetation so that insects won't eat them. Right. <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing is that over time, insects overcome, have evolved to overcome some of these plant protection mechanisms. So there are, of, of all the land-based uh, insects, um, over 90% of them have a species-specific relationship with the native plant. And I'll give you a good example. Uh, that is the relationship between milkweeds and monarch butterflies. Right. Uh, the monarch larvae or caterpillars have adapted to the toxic chemical that is produced by milkweeds, and they're able to eat that vegetation unharmed. Uh, unlike other caterpillars who would probably right. die, I guess. Right. And in fact, these monarch caterpillars have to have milkweed to survive. And that's one of the reasons we encourage people to plant milkweed. And, and, the, and the fun part about it is, is that the caterpillars end up being protected by that milkweed chemical as well. Birds uh, have literally been known to, to spit them out. <laughs> right. So, uh, and... Anyway, uh, Doug basically did many studies about um, birds in his yard feeding the, fled the nestlings and the fledglings and determined that these birds must uh, have found or fed thousands and thousands of caterpillars, well, thousands anyway, of caterpillars each day. And then that's because the nestling and fledgling birds have to have protein to grow and Caterpillars are nice little juicy bundles of protein. So, and he, so he's really established that for a fact that we need to, in order to have birds in your yard, you need to have caterpillars, and in order to have caterpillars, you need to have native plants. And right. in order for birds to be successful plants, where he recommends that the landscape be composed of at least seventy percent native plants. Certainly makes sense. I mean, you can just see the the intertwining of all these. You know, the plants, the insects, the birds, the wildlife. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan here with Meg Inglis, Executive Director of the Native Plant Society of Texas. Um, and we just covered a lot about native plants. What are invasive plants? We hear all the time that, you know, certain types of plants that we might have in our garden are, in <laughs> fact, invasive. <laughs> what are those and how did they get here? Well, invasive plants are species that are, well, native plants are native, invasive plants are non-native. And um, they're non-native to that particular region where they happen to be. And their introduction can cause or is likely to cause economic or environmental harm to, uh, or harm to human health as well. What, what, what invasives do that are harmful is that they, they come in and they're very, uh, Invasives by their nature 
are very well adapted to wherever they decide they want to land. <laughs> and they um, end up taking over uh, and dis displacing native plants by taking over um, the, the locations that natives are growing. They, they outpace native plants. And the, and the reason they do that is because they have no natural enemies. So it really impacts the nature's balance of the species. We should note that a lot of what are considered invasive plants are sold in nurseries and big box stores. It's a good idea to call your local nurseries and find out which ones sell plants that are native to your area. Buy plants from nurseries where the sales staff can tell you something about the plants you buy, rather than from big box stores that simply stock large quantities of whatever is popular. You may be wondering whether non-native plants ever become native. I asked Meg Inglis that. It took natives thousands of years to evolve as natives, and we're right at the point where most non-native invasive plants are relative newcomers. And uh, what I'd, I'd like to say is that we not test that out <laughs> and yeah. just plant natives instead, because right. we know that's the right thing to do for our environment. And non-natives are planted, it's not always obvious if they're going to be invasive or not. And, and so they could be planted, uh, come into an area and, and be planted in the landscapes for um, 20 years, but then all of a sudden they take on the um, characteristics of being uh, invasive and can cause real problems. Of course, we want individual gardeners to plant native plants because of the many benefits they bring, but what about plantings around commercial, government, or private businesses? Absolutely, I, I think that's a great idea. We, Austin does a really good job of that. If you go to um, their, their library, downtown library, for example, has got all non-natives. They take their government, they, they take their um, public buildings seriously when it comes to native plants. And each native landscape adds up uh, to create a larger landscape. So the more landscapes that we put natives into, no matter how small, uh, the better. And th this is something else that Doug Tallamy has done, is, and he's created the concept of the uh, backyard, uh, homegrown national park. And... Um, where and, and brought and really made us understand that it, you don't have to have a large piece of property in order to um, make a difference. Um, if I in my neighborhood, for example, if my whole yard is native, and then if my next door neighbor or the neighbor across the street is native, then they just add up together. You can create this sort of image of a more and more property becoming native and turning being turned into a homegrown national park. And in fact, you don't even have to imagine it. You can go online to his website. And if you have, I think he requires you to have over 70% of your yard to be native. And right. if you, if you meet that requirement, you can add your 
your landscape to his map and which I think is a really cool idea to be able to go to that map and see the homegrown national park growing because these connections are critical uh, to maintaining the sustainability and resilience of our ecosystem. Whether a home garden, commercial, government, private, I assume you would oppose planting of lawns. Can you talk about that? Yes. Lawns were, I guess lawns harken back to our European roots. That's what I always hear. I, mm-hmm. I still don't understand it because uh, lawns can lawns are basically what we would call a monoculture, and they have they actually offer nothing for wildlife. And the other thing about lawns is that they they uh, require a lot of water. And this is just something that we cannot afford. Neighborhoods need to talk to their HOAs and and talk about the fact that lawns are. Uh, can be detrimental in many ways and uh, to convince them that it's okay to replace their lawns because some neighborhoods require lawn, which just just boggles the mind. And that's what you see when a typical development goes in. The the whole, all the plants are wiped out except for a few that are considered valuable, like uh, around here it's live oaks. They'll leave the live oaks and wipe everything else out and then put the house in, and then what they add is a lawn in the front yard and the backyard and a few shrubbery shrubs around the house and a, and a tree in the front yard. And, um, and, right. and that is such a water hog, and we can't afford to do that. We, we just can't afford to do that. We have a limited supply of water on earth. We have, uh, it, it's set, we can't create water. Um, so we, we need to conserve as much as we can. And I see an alarming trend in my area, not in, of, of people having both rainwater and well water sources so that they can have the luxury of watering their lawn on a daily basis of this heat, which I think wow. is a huge mistake and filling swimming pools and that, that sort of thing. I think that it's becoming clearer and clearer to everyone that water is a limited resource and we need to be as careful as we can about consuming it. Right. And that's the other benefit, of course, of natives, which you talked about earlier, is that they can cope with the rainfall in your particular area uh, without without additional watering. You do need to, I have to give the caveat, you have to understand that you can't put just you can't put plant any plant in the ground and, and not water it to establish it. So there's a right. certain period of establishment right. where of they have to be watered, but then after that, um, you don't right. you shouldn't have to. These plants are amazing right. in their ability to respond to the conditions uh, that they're given. I'm always amazed. The fact that lawns are water hogs and have to go has become very clear to a number of states, including Nevada, which has declared that only grass lawns with some functional use, like athletic fields or cemeteries, can remain. Everything else must go by 2027. Nearly 4,000 acres of grass will have to be torn up and removed, which could result in saving 10 billion gallons of water each year. That's a lot of water.
Other states, including California, Utah, and Colorado, are addressing the issue of lawns and water use in various ways, including paying people to get rid of their lawns or banning the irrigation of grassy areas that serve no particular function. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here with Meg Inglis, Executive Director of the Native Plant Society of Texas. Um, And uh, I recently read a study that showed that milkweed plants we buy at the nursery are probably laden with multiple pesticides and fungicides, which would probably be harmful to pollinators. Uh, And that made me wonder whether the other native plants we buy at at nurseries or probably at big box stores also have harmful pesticides and fungicides. So what do you suggest gardeners who are looking for safe and organically raised native plants should do? Well, we recommend that you shop for native plants at local nurseries. But especially at, at local nurseries that are known for selling native plants. We can, and when you go to these local nurseries and look at their native plants, then you need to ask the nursery whether the plants have been treated with any pesticides. And it's different, that's a different question than if the nursery has, if the nursery is spraying insecticides. If, the, you know, if they're not spraying insecticides, then they can safely say no. But if you ask the question, have these plants ever been treated with any pesticides? That's a different question. And hopefully they'll be honest and say, well, we don't know, or perhaps, or whatever. So if you find out that the plant has been treated with pesticides, then your, your job is to let them know that that's unacceptable and that you, you know, and furthermore, that you're not going to buy it because of that. Right. So um, the other way you can get around um this issue is to propagate your own plants. Mm -hmm. You can get seeds or cuttings and a lot of these plants you can take a cutting from a a plant that's already in your yard for example and create another uh, take a cutting and create another plant so yeah it's a problem I agree and I I think we just need to be vocal about it and uh, as much as possible. Right try to change it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do agree, though, about propagating your own, because I know a lot of my native plants will actually drop little plants. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you just dig dig it up and replant it somewhere else. (laughs) Well, and that's right. And and that's how you know that, for example, the Austin Native Plant Society, Texas plants are not, don't have pesticides or on them is because a lot of times that's what we do is we just dig up our little plants and and put them in the pot and bring them bring them to the plant sale we also buy our wholesale plants from reputable plant nurseries and um so that's the other thing is our we know what our source is and we know what our source does and um they are uh it's native texas nursery up here in austin is a is our wholesaler and then we also have a few plant, um, we have, you know, the Native Plant Society has a huge mixture of people. And one of, one of the groups that's attracted to the Native Plant Society is, are the people who, who grow plants, you know? And they, so we have a couple of uh, growers in our, in our, act, in our chapter that, that uh, sell plants at the, at the sale. Right. And uh, speaking of your sale, you also have another big event coming up. 
tell us about Texas Native Plant Week. What is that? <laughs> the te- Native, uh, Native Plant Week is the third week of every October. During that week, we celebrate native plants even more than we do the rest of the year. And uh, we have plant sales and we have city proclamations and bio blitzes and contests and, and media releases and stuff like that. So where can where can people find out? Is there a website to go to? We do have a website. It's um, <clears throat> the acronym for our organization, which is N is in Nancy, P is in Paul, S is in Sam, O, T is in Tom. dot org, and that that's where you can if you just go to that state website, you can look up um, other. You can find about out about chapters that you might be interested in. We have under resources, we have native plant lists that you can use uh, uh, broken up by area that they grow, not by ecoregion, because we don't expect a layperson to know what ecoregion they are in. But let's say, for example, we have one for the Williamson County area, and then we show a picture of the ecoregions that Williamson County has, and then have a list of uh, about 100 almost 150 plants for people to be able to plant in that area. That that sounds very useful. Oh, it's fit so to know yeah, yeah, in your own area, right? Exactly. So we're trying to do we're doing the best we can to try to get information out about it through our website and I just uh, encourage you to go explore the website. I also want to put a plug in for our native uh, landscape certification program. That's a program that's near and dear to my heart because I started out working for this organization specifically as the coordinator for that program. And it's a series uh, of day-long classes, four day-long classes that talk about the benefits of native plants. These classes are put on not by the state, but by our very loyal and passionate uh, Native Plant Society of Texas volunteers who just do this out of the love of their heart. And they, uh, all throughout the state, these volunteers are uh, typically creating um, hybrid programs. So the presentations are online, and then we have another part called the Plant Walk, and the Plant Walk is done in person. So the Austin chapter, for example, we do our presentations on a Saturday, and then the next, and then that afternoon we go and look at the plants at the Wildflower Center. What can our listeners do to help promote native plants? Oh my gosh, buy native plants! <laughs> That's the best thing you can do is to buy them, and ask for them, request them, right. uh, plant a small pollinator garden in your front yard. Uh, start with a small part of your yard, begin adding native plants and removing non-native plants. Um, you need at least 70% of your yard to be native. And um, talk about native plants to your neighbors. Get involved with HOAs to make it okay to plant something other than lawns. Ask nurseries to sell more plants, as I've already said. And the other question that we talked about earlier, too, is ask nurseries if they plan plants with, uh, treated with pesticides, don't buy them and tell, tell the nurseries why if they have pesticides. And then ask big box stores to sell locally sourced native plants and remove invasive plants wherever you can. 
Native plants are such an important topic that Mothering Earth has featured it in several programs. In fact, our very first show way back in 2014 was about the importance of using native plants. As you heard her say, my guest, Meg Inglis, has learned a lot from an author, entomologist, and professor, Doug Tallamy. Tallamy is well known for his popular books on how wildlife populations suffer when the plants they depend on aren't around. It's an urgent situation with a simple solution, plant native plants. Tallamy also promotes a grassroots approach to increasing the spread of native plants, whether in the form of trees, shrubs, grasses, or other plants. He is the co-founder of the Homegrown National Park. Go to homegrownnationalpark.org and you can add your land, your yard, your garden space, no matter how big or small, to the map of the Homegrown National Park. There are some requirements, such as that you reduce your lawn area and have 70% of your plants be native. Don't worry if you don't know what is native in your area. The Homegrown National Park website has resources which will tell you what plants work in your zip code. This is a wonderful way to be part of the solution to climate change while creating gardens full of life with a diversity of pollinators, birds, and other creatures. Imagine the joy that can bring to children and to you. Thanks so much for listening. Please tell people you know about the Mothering Earth podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform. Check out our website at mothering-earth.com. Mothering Earth is also on Instagram at mothering underscore earth. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth your source for sustainable living news.